Welcome back to, well, what episode is this now of um, our, our, our concentrations? Uh, Wes, I, I, I'm afraid I didn't, uh, I didn't prepare by looking uh, to see what number we would be at. I was so excited to get on the phone with you. <laughs> it's probably around 10. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, I think it might be 10. It's either 9 or 10. So I, I suppose even if it's not, we can celebrate our, our liberal arts educations uh, with our critical thinking and lack of uh, specific detail when it comes to uh, uh, numerical quantifications of what it is we're doing. I, I suppose it is a rather crude way of looking at things anyway, just simply by uh, means of looking at the numbers, right? I mean, yeah. what, are, what are we anyway? Uh, things on which you can put uh, a price or, or are we something with some sort of qualitative subjective value? Well, you know, I suppose it's some mix of the book. Of the two, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, is probably more important than I, I am making it out to be. I'm sorry, sorry. Go on, please. No, I just, I don't. We're putting all these things out there for free, so as far as quantifiable value, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. But the other way you could say it is that they're priceless, right? Yes, that sounds. Uh, that sounds like a very much beautiful way <clears throat> of saying it. So, regardless of whether we are on our uh, concentration nine. Or 10, you had brought up some of the recent work that I did in book um, 15 uh, or in books 14 and 15 of Homer's Iliad talking about um, the relationship between Hera and Zeus and specifically recently before we we started this conversation on the role of Poseidon and that whole um, uh, situation. And I thought if if you would permit me, I might just lay out a couple of things about Poseidon and what he does during the Iliad so that we could have a richer view of what he might be doing. Um, yeah, have at it. And so first and foremost, in the generation before the Trojan War, when Heracles, during the generation when Heracles with six ships rather than the thousand ships with which the Achaeans have sacked, the, sacked Troy, uh, both Apollo and Poseidon had been enslaved to Laomedon, uh, the father of Priam, in order to... Uh, be a shepherd for him as Apollo and to build his wall as Poseidon. And um, depending on the account, Laomedon, who who frequently attempts to do this and always pays for it, he reneged on what it was that he offered. He he did not give the payment to Poseidon and to um, and to Apollo. And so uh, uh, Poseidon summons a sea monster that is going to eat um, is going to eat Hesione, uh, daughter of Laomedon, brother. Uh, sister of Priam, and this is actually what makes Heracles come through. He defeats the uh, sea monster, takes his CNA. Laomedon doesn't give to him what he's supposed to give him, and then uh, of course Heracles sacks the city and kills all of his all of Laomedon's children, except for Priam, who is only called now Priam because of uh, the Greek verb priestai to buy because he's sold into slavery. And so he, like Nestor, is a youngest son who has all his brothers killed by by Heracles and and by that uh, terrible thing happening um, he comes to be king and again we see that uh, as a very rich and uh, uh, deeply symbolic uh, mythological symbol of the last son coming to be first and uh, you see that in and I know I'm supposed to be talking about Poseidon now so I haven't lost my train of thought but this <laughs> is also interesting um, <clears throat> that um not only with Kronos, he was the youngest son of Uranos, and he overthrew Uranos, heaven, was married to Earth, Gaia, just like God made heaven in the earth at the beginning of Genesis. And he, um, then Zeus is the youngest son, it's at, which is something. Uh, <laughs> not in Homer, but in all other mythological traditions, Zeus is the youngest son, and he defeats his father. In Milton, in Paradise Lost, Satan is the first son mm. in a way of uh, God. He is around before the son who will be embodied as Jesus. So it's not called Jesus in uh, paradise lost. And though Satan will corrupt mankind, uh, the son will volunteer to go uh, save them. And so right. the coming of the youngest son and even Dionysus is the youngest Olympian who is the dying and being reborn. God, God of wine, like what served at a mass. Um, <clears throat> for another dying and being reborn God. Um, the idea seems to be, oh, and also you see this in the Old Testament, right? With um, Jacob taking uh, that which was Esau's uh, as a youngest son, and also Joseph, his own youngest son, doing the best of all his 
brothers as well. Um, the, the idea seems to be uh, in these, these mythological tales, and this is something I explored in seminar with my students on Thursday, that um, all these stories are about the coming of one generation to power in struggle, by power or by struggle generally, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but also by right, by right of strength or cleverness, often a mixture of both, mm -hmm. uh, which are both important um, to success in this world. And we'll talk about that more with uh, Odysseus and in the context of the Iliad. Um, but um, <clears throat> one generation has to supplant the generation from before as unlikely as it seems to be given the power of the generation that is currently in power and the relative weakness of position and strength of uh, the one who will, the once and future king, you might say, the, the mm. son. Um, <clears throat> so, well, I, you know, I, don't, I, <laughs> I, know, I know that I'm supposed to be laying out Poseidon stuff uh, now, but maybe, maybe you have some input on that uh, yeah. to him back to that um yeah yeah well first i wanted to ask where 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 does the uh the, the mythological account of this uh herculean fall of troy where does that appear in the well so uh so uh so heracles shows up in several different places um apollonius of rhodes who was a hellenistic writer and was i believe the third um uh library of alexandria librarian uh -huh. he, he has heracles on the voyage of the argon of the Argo and the Argonautica and something to keep in mind is that of course, Athena is the one responsible for ships first being built. And so she's a goddess of exploration and that's how one acquires wisdom through exploration mm -hmm. and invention and using our human invention in order to explore more, which is of course what we do with microscopes and telescopes of varying degrees these days in order to see even more of what, 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 what we don't know. And it's interesting because Neptune is mentioned as having seen a shadow for the first time passing over his uh, eerie sky. Oh, cool. And so Heracles is also, you can see all of his uh, 12 labors, which were originally 10, but uh, uh, two and five, I believe, were not accepted by King Eurystheus, who was his half-brother, um, uh, who Hera actually ensures gets born before him because of a vow of saying that whichever boy is born on that day will rule. And so she like... She prevents Heracles from being born, and she has Eurystheus born uh, very early, something like two months early, but he survives. Um, you can also see in um, the work of a, a excuse me, I'm, I'm uh, the the, li the Library of Greek Mythology by Apollodorus. Oh, okay. Um, that uh, that has Heracles and facts about him sort of laid out, um, and in the story of his twelve labors, um, like I was saying, and also in the Iliad, you can see a patchwork account of Heracles. He of all the heroes of the past, even more than Tidius, though Diomedes is always called son of Tidius, mm -hmm. always, often, very, very often, um, which is a real callback to the, the great deeds of his father as a patronymic. And, um, <clears throat> well, Heracles is mentioned more than any other hero that's not present at Troy in the Iliad. So we get a lot of information about him and his relationship with Hera, and some of the great deeds he accomplished against both Achaean and Trojan, and uh, uh, about his many conquests. And so if somebody were interested in learning a little bit about Heracles, those are some definite sources you could have. Okay. Uh, much better than the Disney movie. Um, <laughs> uh, Anything I, could be better than the Disney movie. Come right, on. Which, I, which I actually show to my students, and one of their, the assignment is find 10... Uh, 10, uh, you know, like mythologically unsound elements <laughs> within the first five minutes, they've already done that. And they're, they continually pester me by asking, does that count? Does that count? Does that count? Like <laughs> they get rather technical. They're like, is that the color that Hephaestus would have been? He's like represented as pink. And I'm like, well, you know, you got to think about it. He's God of the forge. So he's always <laughs> in the fire. And if you've ever, ever seen like a baker or yeah. something like that, they're often rather pink faced. And so it's okay. like, you know, you might want to give Disney some credit on that one. Um, but um, you know, obviously, like with all mythology, they 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 make some major changes. So um, it sounds like in that in that case, yeah, the story I know about Hercules comes out of um, the Tales of the Greek Heroes book by Roger Lancelin Green. That's a it's a kind of retelling for for kids basically, but a a, a decent one. And, we uh, actually we use uh, several of his works for in our sixth and seventh grade 
yeah. programs um, to get them sort of hipped to the idea of the epics and the old stories before right. we get the, uh, the original sources. Well, it sounds like in, in that version too, um, he's got the brother or sort of the half brother. And so it sounds like Hercules is also a, a second son in that sense, right? So yeah, so here's something cool about his birth. So um, just like with King Tyndareus and uh, his wife, um, uh, Heca, or excuse me, how, how am I, Leto, there we go. Leto and the Swan is a very famous uh, story. Zeus on the night of Leto, Leta and um, Tyndareus's wedding lays with Leta in the form of a swan. And then King Tyndareus does too. And then two eggs are hatched. And egg, uh, one egg are immortals, the children of Zeus, which are either Polydeucus and Helen or Castor and Helen. I think it's Polydeucus and Helen. And then the mortals are are um, the wife of Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, and um, who is of course Helen's sister. And um, so they're they're really they both cheat. And there is a prophecy that they will cheat because of Tyndareus not offering appropriate sacrifice to Aphrodite at some point, which sounds like he did not properly cultivate the femininity in his daughters. And so they were doomed to betray the men in their lives in the same way that the first man in their life betrayed them. And, um, and so the second pair, uh, Castor and um, Clytemnestra, were mortal. And so the idea was that one child is mortal, one is immortal. Um, and sort of like, I guess, Cain and Abel is a negative version of that. But with Heracles, um, he was born alongside Iphicles, who was the mortal son of their father, Alcmaon. Or, excuse me, um, Alcmene is the mother's name. Uh, some, I, I think it is Alcmaon, but I may, be, I may be messing that one up right now. But um, so Zeus lay... And so did, uh, so did the father uh, with, um, with the mother. And so he is also a twin. And he was actually originally called uh, Alcides and his brother Iphicles. But something about his father is his father was himself a hero, which is not something that you get in the Hercules movie. He's just sort of like a, a normal shepherd, like sort of like Clark. He's been like turned into Clark Kent's father, essentially. Right. Um, but that's not the case at all about him. I mean, uh, obviously it would have become a farmer later in his life, but um, he, he was a great conqueror. And so Iphicles would have been great himself, but yeah. So that's a very long answer to your question. Yes. Alcides, Heracles, Hercules is, is a twin. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the second, the second twin, right? He's, he's the second born. You know, it's, it's interesting because also with Superman, he's like a twin, right? Because there's Clark Kent who is his twin. He just embodies two roles, sort of like your friend Soren Kierkegaard, who, who himself did the same sort of thing. And I, I often wonder whether we, if we did this podcast behind masks like Dead Mouse or, or um, uh, Daft Punk yeah. uh, or like Anonymous, whether we, we would get thousands of uh, listeners immediately because then we would be valuing our message over the fame of our name. And well, you know, frankly, that, that sort of appeals to me because I do value our message over the fame of our names. Yeah. And I do like being a private citizen and not being... You know, I can walk anywhere and do anything and nobody cares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, the kind of invisibility. Um, but I think it's also just rings true to the multifariousness of, of opinions, right? Like if you have once, if you can see one side of an issue, then you haven't really looked at that issue yet, right? Like until you can see at least a couple of perspectives on it. Right, right. And, you know, that's something I was talking about with um, a friend of mine, the uh, – yesterday even that uh that seems to be something about being on a team with other individuals and learning how to value them for what they bring especially on an all-male team like a sports team uh like baseball that i i used to play and um the idea being that each individual brings value to the the equation in the way that they bring it which is different from the way you do and probably the quantity and that sort of lower on the pecking order is somebody that can do something very well. And you can think about this even in sports, like uh, in baseball, like the, the guy who comes in to be a pinch runner because he's very fast or the guy who comes in to lay down a bunt or a pinch hitter that comes in, you know, for one, one uh, at bat every three games. 
or yeah. something like that. And then, uh, but closer to the top, you have the people with the very much varied skill sets, the mm -hmm. people that put several different sets of skills together and can also understand and learn from those um, below them in the pecking order because they understand not only the value of what those people do, but also the mechanics to some extent of what they do. And it was interesting too, because I was a claim made by Steve Jobs, or at least in the Steve Jobs movie by Michael Fassbender, was that he doesn't play an instrument, but he plays, he plays the people in the symphony. He plays the musicians. Hmm. So he is a people person. And I wondered whether being a people person means being a person who can recognize the skills of others and to some extent not only acquire those skills but orchestrate those skills in order to create a product whether a physical one or a culture in the most harmonious and therefore sonorous and beautiful way yeah, yeah. and i just to tie that back to poseidon <laughs> uh, i think that's what zeus is trying to do and why it would be a major issue if his brother poseidon who is essentially the second part of a three or tripartite godhead with him, mm. if they are at odds and they have been at odds. And how I was interpreting that throughout my lecture course is that whereas Zeus re represents superordinate order, the entirety of a dominance hierarchy, Poseidon represents the innate, the human aspect or the earthly aspect, and that he is the innate talent or level of skill of not only one individual, but all individuals combined. And that's why he can encourage people and improve their abilities on the battlefield. Um, and so when there's dissonance between Poseidon and Zeus, there's dissonance in the natural order of things because the order of heaven should be reflected in the order on earth. Achilleus should be fighting and the Achaeans as the more skilled fighting force should be defeating Troy. Yeah. But... Zeus is currently giving his favor to the inappropriate side due to the resentment of Achilleus. In fact, it seems to be such a powerful comment on the power of resentment. A bad attitude can turn your own skills against you. It can turn upside down the laws of nature and the laws of heaven. And that seems to be exactly right. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Achilleus, like Lucifer, is in a fallen, dark state, whereas he should be shining with the morning glory. Above all yeah. others, yeah, that's what he's created for, right? And and uh, and you see that in in the in the Odyssey too, when we meet him in Hades, right? He's, right. That's like the third part of the 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 the, the tripartite, um, the the brothers that you're talking about, right? So yes, yeah. We, we and you never, and you, never, you know, interesting thing about Hades is you never get to see or talk to him in epic. Um, uh, that may be untrue yeah. in the Fairy Queen, but uh, the one the gift he's given by the Cyclopes. Uh, I only ever remember, oh no, I actually have remembered all three of them. Steropes, um, Brontes, and Pirachmon. I don't, I can't believe I remembered that. But, what uh, is that? Pirachmon is the third one. There's the word for fire in there, pure. Uh, also okay. the word for purity. When you purify, you burn uh, in ritual offer, offerings. And so they gave three gifts to the tripartite brothers three. Um, Zeus, the thunderbolts, of course, so that he could astonish and thunderstruck uh -huh. those. Um, Poseidon, the trident, the three teeth. Uh, uh -huh. Three teeth, excuse my southernism there. And um, Hades, the cap of invisibility. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is very interesting because that death is invisible. Death comes, death comes on swift wings, one might say. Um, you don't ever have to see Hades because Hades is so ever present in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. People are constantly dying. Right. And so he doesn't even need to be anthropomorphized because he's such an embodied part of human experience. We know he's there. He's just invisible and thus even more present in our imaginations. Um, and so that's an interesting thing the students often so like, you know, where's Hades? We get to see Poseidon and we get to see Zeus. Of course, we see Zeus first and then Poseidon. It's like, well, we do see Hades. Yeah, right. Every time someone dies, we see Hades. Um, Interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, well, back to Poseidon. Um, and so he doesn't like Troy precisely because he was uh, stiffed 
once by Laomedon, uh, the father of Priam. And so it makes sense that he doesn't like Troy just as Hera and Athena don't like Troy because of the judgment of Paris, which was when Paris gave the Khaleesi apple to the fairest, um, very Snow White-like, to um, Aphrodite and not to those two. And so they chose to be on the Achaean side. Aphrodite, of course, was on the Trojan side, being the mother of Aeneas, who will someday rule the Trojans, who will someday become the Romans. Um, though Aeneas lives quite a bummer of a life, and I'm sure we'll have many conversations about that in the coming year or so. Um, but so, so Poseidon is on the Achaean side. Poseidon also shows up at a couple different weird intervals. He doesn't really enter the action until um, book 12 of the Iliad. That's when he gets going helping the Achaeans. But then later on in the text, he will save Aeneas because of a prophecy of Zeus, mm. indicating that even though he is on the Achaean side, he is still one in will with Zeus and therefore fate. Because Hera and Athena and their fickleness refuse to help any Achaean, even if it is the will of fate, or excuse me, any Trojan, even if it is the will of fate for that Trojan to live. That's how much they hate the Trojans. Yeah. Uh, one might understand them to understand the will of fate better than humans, which means better than us, which means, God, they really must actually hate the Trojans that much. And a woman scorned, a goddess scorned, one can only imagine how bad that is. Unless you read Ovid, in which case you don't have to imagine it. Read the story of Acteon. Don't look at Artemis while she's new. Don't look at nature without culture transfixing or, or as a mirror to reflect it, or you will be uh, torn apart. Torn apart by his own. By his own. It seems like the message in, in, in the Aeneid too, right? Hera is sort of the driving force of everything in that in that book, in that story. Yes, her, her she's yeah. It's interesting because she's constantly rele releasing anomalous situations by invoking people's passions. In yeah. fact, the very, first, the very first scene is a major metaphor or allegory for this in that she pays off Aeolus, god of winds, to release the winds, which is an allegory for releasing the passions. Invisible mm -hmm. motive forces that affect you, though you cannot see them. Uh, that, those are emotions. Um, and, and, uh, and she releases these winds or has them released against the against the proper order, which would be Neptune rep representing the rational intellect or the calm of the sea. Um, he is supposed to release the winds, but she goes around this by inciting the passions of Aeolus by offering him the nymph Deopia in the same way that she offers hypno or sleep, uh, a nymph in, in the Iliad. Uh, it's a common common theme for her and so um the passions are released as storm winds which destroy several three of aeneas's ships against rocks uh macabre entitled the, the altars and uh and so the uh, the entire text is about the war between the rational mind and the passions and it begins with the passions of the gods afflicting mortals but it ends with the passions of mortals afflicting mortals because of course aeneas destroys his great enemy turnus upon seeing uh, 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 a piece of a Vander's armor. Uh, I think it's a, I forget exactly what it is. It's a small keepsake from, from excuse me, not a Vander, but his son, Pallas. Um, he, it's his war belt. Um, and uh, an image of a marriage. Is that right? Am I mixing that I, up? There might, there might be, but it is his war belt yeah. that Turnus is wearing. And in that moment when Aeneas is about to show his piety and sparing, uh, it is great mercy, as it was said in the prophecy in book six, that the Trojans will subdue the savage peoples and they will, they will, show, uh, they will show them the civil way. Well, that is not what happens here. Aeneas, Aeneas uh, is in no way gentle. He sees this keepsake of his friend. And if you've ever seen Bloodsport, it's like when Johnny, du it's like when Frank Dukes uh, sees, sees Chong Lee come out with uh, the headband of his friend who he almost killed in the fight before. Well, He's filled with rage at this and righteous indignation. And well, that is precisely what Aeneas gets filled with, that era, that irateness, that great rage. And he strikes down Turnus and yeah. showing that the rage of the gods can be embodied by, by men. And that, well, potentially the Roman people were the sort of people that would lose out to that force. And the fact that they're sacked by barbarians might add, uh, 
that might that might be sort of an embodied idea that they uh, the passions did eventually destroy the rational intellect. But as Reagan says, and I'm not you know the biggest Reaganite, uh, democracy democracy is only one ever one generation away. It's a fragile um, thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a fragile flower. Flower, as Boris Johnson in debate against Mary Beard at IQ squared uh, said. Well, uh, <laughs> well, democracy's a it's a it's a fragile flower. <laughs> and he, of course, was arguing uh, the merits of Greece against Rome, suggesting that uh, while Greece gave us the vote, Rome took it away. <laughs> that's great. It, well, it so is that's, that's the opening of. Uh, well, sorry, but the the anger thing—that's the opening of the Iliad too, right? I mean. Yeah, the yeah, very the first word, and the accusative, menace, yeah. um, rage. Yes, it, 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 it. and so no, that's just... that's the whole beauty of the uh, the Greek civilization that they they seem to for some time bind that rage yeah. and yeah. to make civilization and to win that that per, that perennial fight for some time, and that yeah. seems to be what we. Yeah, go on. No, just the the way the way that the book ends is with that beautiful scene between Priam and Achilles, right, uh, in his tent. And so, you so yeah, I think that that's a great kind of emblem of, <laughs> if you like, the ideal of that of that poem suggests that you start in rage and you end in pity and and sympathy. Yeah, um, that, that, that's the utter effect of rage. Yeah. Rage leads to sadness. Rage, if embodied, if allowed to be unrestrained, is going to lead to uh, potentially an even worse emotion, um, which is, you know, the tragic consequences of your own malevolence that right. you enacted while you were angry and, and, and also leading to you eventually recognizing the effects of what happened. Because, of course, when you're enraged, you, you value the present over the future. And Unconscious. That's something, yeah. that's something that comes up. Uh, and, and you sing, you become singular in your focus. And so Achilles, whose name comes from Akko, which means suffer or grief, knows himself in these final moments to be a creation that causes suffering not only to his enemies, but also to his friends and family because he calls suffering to Patroclus because he died because of Achilles. Achilles should have gone out and fought, but it was his own rage and, and, and short-sightedness that kept him from uh, keeping his friend from dying, even though there was a fate put out by Zeus that this would happen in this way, but yeah. uh, it's double That's, determined. Um, the, yeah, go, go ahead. No, 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 no. But uh, yeah, but also he realizes that he's a he's a pain to his mother, who's always suffering on account of him because of the fact that he's going to die. He's, he's a pain to all the Achaeans who die when he's not out there fighting, uh, including Machaon, who is injured, not dead, but whom he sent Patroclus to check on because surely Achilles felt terrible for that fact and understood the gravity of that situation. And also he's a grief to his father for whom he cries uh, when he sees Priam in pity, when they cry together, Priam cries for dead Hector and Achilles alternates between crying about Patroclus and his father, who he now recognizes will be pitiful in the same way that Priam is pitiful and also subject to having all his possessions stolen from him in the same way that Priam will. Priam will be sacked and destroyed. But Achilles is the only son of Peleus, and Peleus won't have Achilles to protect him. And so, potentially, Peleus has been put in the exact same situation as Achilles because of his selfish decision to be famous for all time and has also destroyed his own family line. Though that yeah. won't happen until Orestes runs into Neoptolemus and they have a bit of a disagreement about who Hermione is going to be married to. Orestes, son of Agamemnon, will end up winning that dispute of all people. And so ultimately it will be the case that, well, just as Rome will come from Troy and defeat the Greeks, and so that team which appears to win at first, or that people will lose finally. Mm -hmm. Well, same thing with the dispute between Agamemnon and Achilles. Though Achilles could defeat and kill Agamemnon, when it comes to their sons in battling, Orestes will defeat. Uh, I see. Yeah. Neoptolemus. And so the son of Agamemnon will defeat in battle the son of Achilles, which is deeply ironic, those Greeks. That's yeah, that's well. So the place that I, I kind of got interested in, in Poseidon, particularly because of the Furies, this, this little detail that you mentioned about how 
he wants to he wants to fight against the decree of fate until he's persuaded by the mention of the Furies. Do I have that right? You do. Um, you do. Um, so as he's down on the battlefield, he's furious himself at the fact that Zeus sends Iris um, to command him off. And Poseidon goes into a tirade saying that the only reason Zeus is above me is because of a game of fate, a game of chance. And um, because we all rolled the dice or, um, yeah, essentially rolled the dice is what they would do. Um, though it's not technically that it's uh they would draw lots there we go um and so zeus won the sky poseidon won uh the waters hades won that which was beneath the earth and the earth and earth and olympus are common to all mm-hmm. so poseidon says i'm equal in rank to him really and Iris says okay okay well am i to go back and tell him this the one thing is that the theories in blood conflicts tend to give preference to the elder and the elders claim. And in, in this case, Zeus happens to be the elder. And so Poseidon does not have to give up his claim of equal rank or might with Zeus, which are both tenditious claims, I would say. He yeah. is not as strong as Zeus, nor is he equal in rank in Zeus, though he is very much close and is a reflection of Zeus's power, but um, um, in so spinning it in this way, Iris creates a a third party, an out, as it were, a noli noli tangere, uh, uh, or a nolo tangere uh, sort of argument for Poseidon. It's like, well, it's very much unfair. And this actually very much reminds me of um, uh, King Lear and the blood disputes there with the bastard and also of Game of Thrones. where uh, it's only because Zeus is the older one that he would receive this unfair natural advantage, which Poseidon could not supervene. Yeah. But, but that those, natural, yeah, oh, go on, yeah. No, just that those, those kinds of things that allow you to save face and that you, you just go along with it because it's the norm, the convention that's been handed down. I mean, that's like, that, that, uh, that saves so much um, you know, violence and, and, uh, and strife in the long run. That's right. Symbolic gestures of respect in that way, respecting the dignity of your opponent in such a way as to say that you're not, you're not giving them an out because you think that they're a coward, but because you respect the fact that they would fight you if they had to, but it would be better for the pack, the society, if you didn't kill each other because you're both showing such profound dignity. And I think that's, that's the yeah, like you like you you put there. Like uh, Peterson has often said, you know, when in an alpha dispute between wolves, they'll sort of bark and pilo erect. They'll have their hair stand on end and they'll get bigger and they'll snarl. And then one will usually symbolically offer up its throat by laying down and uh, showing its belly and throat to the alpha. And the alpha will not rip out its throat because it needs that wolf to make sure that pack stays strong and to go out hunting with it. Um, right. And I think that's. That's what, what Zeus and Poseidon are here modeling, which humans are here supposed to model. We're supposed to get the message, as it were, that um, in, in situations where there is uh, some difficulty deciding who is, who is the leader and who is the follower, um, there, uh, it might, a show of sort of equality, uh, it's, I don't know how to put it exactly, uh, a sh- a show of mutual recognition mm-hmm. seems to be the most effective way to keep uh, to to keep harmony in the society while also recognizing a certain hierarchy while also not feeling the need to engage in violence in order to prove what right. the hierarchy is at. And, even, and violence is no sure guarantee that the better man is going to win. Um, right. Either um, just the stronger one and well you know that will come up too and um how is it that we determine who is the better man uh what sorts of competitions do we use in order to give gifts or 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 items of profound value like the armor of achilleus later on in the um in the events after the iliad for example as the raider will make a claim because of its great strength and prowess and blood relationship to achilleus that he should have the armor 
Odysseus will say, because he is the greatest strategist and offers the most value of any of the soldiers <laughs> that right. he deserves the, the, um, the armor. And in fact, they will not engage in a physical fight, but rather in a, a speech contest. And so the contest is skewed in the favor of Odysseus and his cunning rather than towards the physical prowess of Aias and his, um, and his sort of, you might say, barbaric Conan-like strength. Um, right. And so the competition itself reflects the shifting values of the Greeks and what makes someone better or more valuable to the society. Um, that also seems to be someone who engages in a nonviolent way of disputation, yeah. um, which enables the good men to continue living after they, they encounter each other. And that, that often happens with the gods. There will be a Theomachy where they fight down in book 21, uh, into book 22, but there will be a dispute in the dispute between Apollo and Poseidon. Those several of them will square off. Apollo will refuse to fight against Poseidon because he says it's just not worth it, which yeah. is incredible, which is incredible because, you know, several commentators on the Iliad, you know, have often said, usually young, young people, you know, couldn't, couldn't the Achaeans have just said that? Right. <laughs> right. It's sort of like, there's this, um, there's this interesting thing about the Furies though, where, where they stand behind all of that, um, sort of avoidance of, of violence, they stand there as the kind of guarantor of that trust. Um, and, and it's interesting that they, you know, they, in so, insofar as they exist, they don't have to actually do the thing because people are so afraid of, of them that they don't push it to that stage of, of actually um, having the conflict, if that makes sense. It makes uh, perfect sense. It, yeah. It's sort of like new, nuclear proliferation, like, you yeah. know, how I came to love the bomb. It's like, there cannot be a nuclear gap. There cannot be, there cannot be, you know, uh, um, a, a fury gap here because they, they guarantee, they seem to guarantee the social order, but from a natural place. They, because they're not representatives of the social order. They're representatives of uh, that, which is most natural, which is the family order. And yeah. regardless of what somebody wants to say today about whether that's a, uh, you know, some patrilineal sort of cultural nonsense, it's like, well, that's not the case of the Furies. The Furies are demons from hell. Demons from hell means, means, means em negative emotions that come up naturally if you act or behave in a certain way um, uh, towards a certain person um, it, who has a certain relationship to you and you can't do anything about it. And so Orestes, who has every rational reason to kill his mother, who has killed his father, who is the king and has taken his birthright from him and even there are suggestions that she wanted to have him killed because he he has to be raised with mm. his good friend Pylades away from um, Argos and Mycenae and so uh, he has every right to execute her as king to be and yet the Furies drive him crazy yeah oh, I mean it's like a Hamlet it's a Hamlet situation too it's precisely, right it's precisely that because you can't out rationalize your emotions, they come from a deeper level from you. That's, a, that's why you certainly know that it's foolish to suggest that this is a cultural construct. It's like, no, 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 no. Culture is constructed around the fact that this happens. Uh, the, we don't define this as happening and then define it into reality. No, we try and represent this imagistically through mythology and then interpret it in the way that we are do, we're doing now in an articulated fashion. It is so ingrained within us not to spill the blood of our family members, that it actually keeps us from doing it because there's no worst, worse emotional pain you can feel than betraying those who are closest to you, uh, not only generally in terms of uh, spatially, but also uh, you know, sanguinely and <laughs> in terms yeah. of physiology even and genetics. Um, it's, it's like you can tell at a physiological level that the key to our success as a species is trust. Right. Right. It's an interesting sort of um, reflection of the, the guest host thing that's so important in, in the Odyssey as well. Right? You know, sort of like these are, your, these are your people and they've taken over your house. And so that's like one of the worst possible things. But there is something that's actually worse than that. Right? Which yeah, would be well, that's precisely right. I think that's, uh, that's also... 
very much present in the Iliad. The fact of Agamemnon taking that which is rightful to Achilleus, that's a trespass upon the Zinnia, the fair, the fair trade, the fairness of the situation. And the very fact of the Trojan War comes about because of a trespass upon the Zinnia, a guest stealing from his host, the most important things he has. And of course, it comes up again and again with Poseidon and Apollo, of course, bringing a sea monster to destroy Troy in the generation before, which Heracles killed, uh, because Laomedon does not honor the Zinnia and his word to them. Again and again, it's keep your word, keep your word, keep your word. If you make an agreement, I mean, even in Dante, um, in the sphere of Mercury, negotiation, fairness, he yeah. makes an argument that one of the worst things you can do to another human because you're betraying them by means of the word of God is to break an agreement with them. And in fact, he says the only condition under which you can change an agreement is, and he breaks agreement into form and matter into two parts, um, into the agreement itself and the thing offered. He says, you can only offer the original thing and more if you want to change the original offer <laughs> because you've already agreed. And the, uh, yeah. the backer of all agreements is God. And, uh, you know, of course, our culture reflects this in the fact that on the back of our money, it says in God we trust suggesting that it is the trust that we have between each other that gives value to our currency. And in fact, that it is our trust that is our true currency. That, yeah, that in the, uh, the example of the, of Dante then made me immediately think of, of the, uh, the marriage vows and how different they are in, in a Christian versus a pagan society. It seems like, uh, or at least maybe the way to say this is, how they're treated metaphorically among the gods in Homeric stories versus the way that God and the church are spoken of metaphorically as a, as a marriage in the biblical uh, stories. And, and so like, cause that's, that's kind of at the bottom of this question about the family and trust too, is this dynamic between Zeus and Hera and then the things that Hera does and then how they make up afterwards. And then, so then there's also the brotherly discord the things that Poseidon does, then how he and Zeus make up. It's all within this kind of framework. Um, but then uh, the, 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 the creation of all these heroes, the uh, generation of all the nymphs and all the semi-divine beings running around making these stories so interesting is because Zeus is not particularly faithful, right, to his, his uh, marriage to Hera. So it's very interesting. I don't know. What do you make of that? Well, uh, very, I make a lot of that, and uh, especially <laughs> during the Odyssey, we'll, uh, we'll have a lot to say on that because marriage is um, des described by Odysseus as the greatest virtue that a person can have. In fact, that it's a great boon to one's friends that he says to, uh, he says to the Phaeacian king, Alcanoas, uh, with Arate present, his wife, um, and, uh, and that it is uh, a great uh, blow to one's enemies. Um, <laughs> because they can't say the worst possible things about you. And of course, there's a story, and we wanted to bring this up, of Ares and Aphrodite and Aphrodite's yeah. infidelity yeah. On, uh, on, um, on poor Hephaestus. And so, you know, Hephaestus is the limping lame god, and Ares is the fastest of the gods, it's said, by Hermes, though Hermes often seems as if he would be the fastest as the messenger god, though conflict right. apparently spreads faster than anything. Um, <laughs> with humans and so um apollo is the one as helio says god of the son of rational consciousness and its ability to perceive that which is unknown um he sees this infidelity and he goes to tell hephaestus in a noble way and hephaestus lays a trap which is an invisible web mm. which only he can navigate and so it's like only the artist knows the, the pro or only the god of artists craftspeople knows the process by which creation works mm -hmm. and uh so it so aries and aphrodite they hephaestus leaves one day aries sneaks back they get down to it they get caught in flagrante delicto uh, uh, uh in the act and are caught in the act and so yeah. none of the goddesses uh they all refuse to come down when hephaestus yells to olympus come down and see this, see what has happened. And only three gods go down. Uh, and they're Hermes Apollo. And remember they're brothers and they sort of like each other. Um, though the first thing Hermes ever did was steal from Apollo, but ends up making Caduceus or, or excuse me, he's, he ends up making for Apollo, the uh, liar that he plays 
for the gods. Right. And Apollo ends up making the uh, winged sandals and cap for um, for Hermes. So they end up they end up getting one over on each other and in and and becoming friends in uh, Hesiod and uh, in the Homeric hymns. And so um, Hermes and Apollo are cracking jokes, and it's very funny. It's actually Apollo who's often sort of a Stoic god, represented uh, colorlessly, um, though Ovid has him uh, uh, given to his passions in his early years, um, uh, in the early stories of him. But Apollo says, uh, Hermes, if you knew you were going to get caught in this way, would you still take a shot with Aphrodite? And Hermes says, would I? He's like, not only would I, but even if you tripled the amount of bonds on me, and made it so that all the Olympian gods saw it happening. I would do it. <laughs> and they're cracking jokes. But while that's happening, Poseidon's getting down to business with Hephaestus. And he's negotiating the release of Ares and Aphrodite because as Olympian gods, love and strife, they need to get back to work. doing Making trouble for people, essentially, because that's part of what being human is. And, um, and so... Poseidon offers to pay the bride price that Hephaestus demands back for Aphrodite if Ares doesn't because, because uh, Hephaestus says very rightfully, how could he possibly trust Ares to repay him after mm. this breach of trust from yeah. him? And so, so that breach of trust in the marriage contract is a major upsetting force amongst the gods, so much so that one of the Olympian gods offers to pay for another and immediately has to handle the situation also, uh, hints of marriage with Calypso, Circe, Nausicaa, who, of course, is predisposed to think about marriage because of a dream sent by Athena. And her very, her very um, uh, uh, what is the word for it? Her very uh, uh, excuse for going down to the river that day that she gives to her father is that she needs to clean the clothes. But the real idea is that from her dream, she needs to have clean clothes in case the suitor shows up. And, of course, a uh, a dirty naked man shows up and that's uh, Odysseus. But after he takes a shower and receives some nice projections from her, he's taller, curlier, and bigger. Um, but also uh, the major contrast in the Odyssey is between the, the marriage of Menelaus and Helen. Yeah. And, and even more so, uh, at least superficially, Clytemnestra and Agamemnon. Clytemnestra, of course, killing Agamemnon for his sacrificing of Iphigenia. And because of her being seduced by Aegisthus, who wants the crown that uh, Agamemnon took from his father, Thyestes, uh, who is Agamemnon's uncle. The uh, house of Atreides is quite a messed up house. I often go through it with my students, um, starting with Tantalus. It's like they just, they just never really got it right in that house until Orestes, uh, which gives me hope for me and my family. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and then also, of course, the uh, marriage of Penelope and Odysseus, which remains rather pristine and is considered in book 24 in the underworld. Um, and so again and again in the Odyssey, uh, a stable marriage seems to be the foundation of a stable society. And the fact that the Trojan War happens is not because of some superficial man's ego, as some uh, third-rate feminist might say, uh, without knowing the facts of the situation, nor thinking the situation through. Um, the idea seems to be rather... I'm sorry, that a little vitriol got me <laughs> off topic. Um, uh, got me out of my mind that, um, what was I saying? I'm sorry, Wes, gosh. The, the, besides what the third-rate feminist was going to say, uh, you're going to give a kind of account for what was the, uh, the, the cause of the Trojan War, if I'm oh, not mistaken. Oh, yes. And so it's not just that some male ego got in the way and wanted to go get its property back, as I've heard, uh, said, and I think is a deeply ignorant point of view, and certainly is a deeply ignorant point of view, it's that the very foundation of Western society was there attacked we. in that moment, which is the sanctity of the marriage bed, which yeah. is actually represented literally by a tree in, connected to the bed of Odysseus. Yeah. So it's like the trust that binds us together in marriage grows out of the ground. So that's not socially constructed. That's as natural as it gets. Um, just like trees are as natural as it gets. And, you know, we surround ourselves with wood constantly because of our evolutionary heritage, having been in trees, right? Like I'm walking on wood right now. I'm surrounded by wooden uh, bookshelves with books inside of them that, are, that have paper pages, which come from books. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, and I have a wooden fan above me. Uh, and I'm also several levels high on the, uh, uh, over the ground. Like I am at tree level and there is actually a tree outside of my window and I have a wooden desk here. It's like, yeah, okay. We, that's the most natural thing in the world. Right. Uh, if something is represented by a tree, we love trees. The giving tree is probably the book you most remember from childhood. Um, <laughs> and so if an institution is symbolized by the tree, just like the theories, that doesn't mean culturally constructed and societally relative. No, 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 no. That means so deeply ingrained within us that it's essentially part of our nature. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the way that that sort of develops then, yeah, from, uh, from the Homeric stories and, and myths and things develops, uh, in a similar way, I guess you could say through the Old Testament into the New Testament, and then through through history, you see this kind of progression of uh, the emphasis on the importance of of the well, you marriage. Know, I mean, yeah. Right. Uh, just, yeah. To, just to agree with you, it's like Jesus and the um, and the church. The church represents yeah. tradition, yeah. and Jesus represents the conscious intellect, and they have to be married together. Sort of like we have to have liberals who like to make new things and do new things. And we need to have conservatives who, who believe in tradition and maintain the traditions. And we need the appropriate mix of both, depending on what the current situation in the world is, both socially and, you know, and economically, and also just uh, naturally speaking, environmentally as well. Um, so in that sense, then, like, so what, what of the Furies then? Like, where do they go? Um, we still have, like you said, the symbols and things on the back of the money. They're, they're sort of like buried in there, these ideas about what stands behind that trust as its guarantor. But we, we don't really, you know, we don't really believe in that quite the same way anymore, I, I feel like, you know? That's um, right. That's right. And Carl Jung was very famous for saying that in, in, not, in no longer projecting our demons out into the world, we, we bring them back inside of us. And so you mm -hmm. can see this prevalence of mental illness and yeah. culture yeah. this time since we don't have external demons of course we're afflicted by terrible mental diseases schizophrenia depression borderline personality disorder uh psychopathy um adhd all sorts of terrible um demon-like afflictions or possessions mm -hmm. you might say even you know terrible uh ideologies that ruin one's physique and uh uh, uh corrupt the mind and character and attitude and <laughs> desire to do good in the world um yeah. and so it seems as if uh and i'll have to think about this wes i mean that's an excellent question what is our current symbol of the furies and i'm, I'm losing capacity i would say okay. at this moment I, i've i had a 20 mile bike ride earlier and then two hours of brutal brutal frisbee and i got hit in the nose and i threw my hat on the ground and uh my friend called a spirit foul on me <laughs> and he totally should have. And that's like the worst thing that can happen in Frisbee. Oh, and uh, and that happened to me today. Uh, so if I sound like I'm cool and collected all the time, well, I I certainly am subject to era just like Achilles, just like Juno and just like Aeneas um, all the time. And, well, you know you know that just as well as anybody. I, yeah, I've, been, chance. I've been there. Yeah, I've been there. I've been there. And uh, so I guess if I were to begin to answer that question, I would say that Perhaps we either project it out onto um, foreign powers at this time while also projecting it onto potentially, I would say currently in our situation, onto, um, onto negative masculine stereotypes. Um, but but um, I mean, it must, the symbol, if we don't have a representation of it, must be lurking in the unconscious and affecting us in some negative way. And so just some evidence for that is that in the Aeneid, book seven, Queen Amata is afflicted by Juno. Juno gets one of the Furies named Electo. Uh, and there are three Furies, Electo, Tisiphone, and Megara. And uh, there's sometimes another, another fourth one, but there are only ever three, but there are four different names in rotation, like with the archangels and such, mm -hmm. and the 12 Olympian gods. In fact, there are, there are 14 people or 14 gods that can be Olympian gods, but aren't always. Sometimes Dionysus doesn't make it on there. Sometimes Hestia, sometimes um, sometimes Persephone. I don't know if Persephone's ever on there. Um, 
but it, it, there's a rotation, <laughs> you might say. And um, sorry, losing my train of thought again. Wes, you can tell that diminishes capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that you were saying something about where the... Oh, um, uh, yes, yes. So Queen Amada summons yeah, okay. a demon. She says if, if... Queen Amada says, and she's the wife of King Latinus, who is the king of the city that is going to be sacked by the Trojans and will serve as their home for the next few years until they found Alba Longa. And then until a few hundred years later, they found under the rule of Romulus, Rome. Uh Um, And so in order to incite the hatred of the people against Aeneas, Juno has Electo. And she, she says, if, if the, if the gods of heaven will not help me, I shall invoke the gods of hell. And so she goes and she gets disgusting Electo who's, who's got green and uh, terrible teeth and is just an embodiment of all that's awful to, to go and throw a snake, a snake of hatred, a snake, of course. And snakes are used to good effect by Virgil. Of course, snakes, two snakes, two red snakes destroy Laocoon under the control of the goddess of wisdom, uh, Minerva, uh, that come out from the water, the unknown. Um, and that they, um, and that's a water and fire symbol, therefore. And so, because they're serpents, so they have fire eyes and they're red. They have red crests. But um, Queen Amada has this snake thrown from a fury into her heart. And this turns her hatred towards the foreigner, yeah. Aeneas, who is not the Rutulian Turnus, who she wants to marry her daughter. Uh-huh. And so she has the fury thrown into her heart, which she then projects onto the foreigner. And so that, and in, in sort of an idea, her idea being that this foreign influence is going to change or dissolve their culture, which will actually be true because the, the Trojans will impose their language, their gods and, and their customs onto, uh, onto the Latins, but, or excuse me, not their language, sorry, their, their customs, I believe their manner of dress and their gods but they will take over the language of the Latins. They will capitulate in, in that respect. And so that's, it creates in her a, a tremendous prejudice against potentially a good change. And I'm not sure exactly what to do with that, because on the one hand, it does seem good to protect one's culture. On the other hand, not being over open to necessary changes, which will bring one into the future also seems like, the opposite end negative pole. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so interesting. Cause it's like, in some sense, Zeus is the representative of fate and everything that happens on the battlefield has to, in some sense, by definition, you know, correspond with that providence. And yet there's this kind of conflict, this tension, like you point out, right. The, the native gifts of certain members of the opposing armies are as such you know, bound and not fully allowed to flower, or they're sort of restrained by, by various things that are, in, you know, fated to happen or whatever you want to say. So that that kind of tension um, seems like the sort of thing that you invoke the Furies in order to a- account for. You know, and then and then they sort of like settle. It's it's so kind you're of suge- you're suggesting that um, just as Poseidon and Zeus being out of whack, mm-hmm. just as I suggested, that's sort of like the worst thing that can possibly be happening and that the, the order of heaven and the order of earth are out of alignment, that it is precisely that out of alignmentness that summons the furies naturally, that when something is out of alignment, oh, you're so right, Wes, uh-huh. I totally understand where you're going with yeah. it now. You would be suggesting that our culture is currently being subject to the furies because of our questioning of our natural values, that there is a, there is a break between our conscious representation of that which we stand for and that which we actually embody by standing for it and in so being out of whack ourselves, the causes furiousness at each other. And I would say just, and maybe these can begin our, our closing remarks. I've been watching these IQ squared videos, which are, uh, it's a British, um, sort of like Mensa. It seems to be, I don't know a great deal about the organization, but I know that I, they, they put on debates between leading intellectuals Uh who argue things like 1984 or, or brave new world. And I would say (laughs) neither. Teach the Iliad. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're good books, 
but there are more important books, more foundational, the ones education. And I, I, I'll, I'll probably debate that whenever somebody wants to go. Okay. Um, <laughs> on IQ squared. And, um, but, uh, and that is Napoleon great or not great? Uh, ancient Greece or ancient Rome? And, but one thing is that Boris Johnson is one of the debaters there, and he's a fine debater. And huh. I think he utterly crushes Mary Beard, though everybody very politely does vote for her since she's a Cambridge professor and she should win that debate. Um, <laughs> but that's the thing. They make fun of each other. Yeah. They have fun. And our, our president is so thin-skinned right now that he won't even go to the correspondence dinner. But I would say that <laughs> he's not the only one who's thin-skinned. We are all yeah. becoming very much thin-skinned. I mean, we throw around this idea of snowflakes. And what is, what is this idea? This idea is that we dislike each other so much that anything will set us off against each other, failing to recognize that we all share so much in common that we should be in love with each other. That, and that we actually do love each other, that we feel most comfortable amongst other Americans who speak, say, English and dress in similar styles to us and enjoy similar foods to us and drive in similar ways to us so we can predict their behavior. We <laughs> love the fact that people are very much predictable around us. And the Brits, they even though they have political disagreements, it's it, because they have this form for debate and this value of debate, just like we were talking about with the abilities of Odysseus as opposed to the violent abilities of is the greater they, mm -hmm. they seem to be able to maintain a mutual respect and love of each other though they're committing a uh, verbal combat mm -hmm. whereas we are now limiting our discourse and even trying to limit the amounts of the sorts of words you can use and even destroy the idea of a confrontation because now you are being confrontational and microaggressively uh destroying this person's safe space it's like is that's pathetic because if we can't speak to each other, like you are appropriately noticing, we invoke the furies, which means we become furious with each other, which yeah. leads to violence. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, yeah, it's it's just sort of like it is there in the background. Like that that has to be recognized. And uh yeah, I think it's a really interesting the thing that came to mind was that that's her that's Hera's um her cover story, right? She's going to go solve some marital disputes between ah. heaven and earth, right? It's so interesting. It's like uh, it's like Homer knew what he was doing or something. <laughs> yeah, and you know, that's something that's actually explicitly said by one of my fa favorite scholars, Ian W. Tilliard. He says, uh, and you and I were talking about that. I, I, I mentioned that I'm now teaching Milton's Paradise Lost and oh, yeah. Virgil's, Virgil's Aeneid, and people often put them amongst, uh, you know, there are different ways of describing epics, but one way is primary and secondary. One way is naive and mm. literary. Um, and often, uh, pr or, or primitive. And I forget the, uh, antecedent or the precedent for that antecedent or excuse me, the consequent from it. Um, but, um, I guess the predicate technically, um, yeah, but, um, sophisticated what, or something like, I don't know. I mean, that would be, that would be the idea that primitive would be something straight out from the imagination and from a yeah. rich and robust experience and verbal fluency, um, yeah. and rich imagination. Whereas, uh, literary, or sophisticated would be not not more sophisticated in terms of a prejudiced way, but more sophisticated in that it was more consciously elaborated in order yeah. and, and and less functionally constructed. Sort of like a very beautiful sword. Like it is functional, but also has an ornateness offer added to it in order to make it a unique piece of art in its own right. And but uh, something E. M. W. Tilliard says about Homer is he can't accept him as a primitive or naive poet. He says he's yeah even though he does represent the folk tales of the Greeks and the way he does it, he's far too profound, <laughs> like Shakespeare, yeah. um, that he appropriates it to himself, um, that he, he, he really brings something profound through in the way that you would expect a profound conscious mind to bring disparate elements together in order to represent the experience and value of a powerful culture. And that's actually something E.M.W. Hilliard makes as an explicit point and his um his brilliant work um the english epic in its background which i thought i started reading in order to get information on milton and he has such a brilliant section on classical epic that it actually has ended up helping me give my podcast on the iliad and in my classes on virgil in the aeneid and so what a, what a profound treasure he is um cool. and right. all these stories we get to consider are as well. I mean, they are the true gems of our culture. Um, here, here. Well, here, here. And seems like a decent place to pause for now and uh, 
Porco tomorrow, or if possible. Yeah, I think I think that'd be great. I think uh, back to video for us, and uh, and we'll be yeah t- t- again talking about more gems from a culture not our own, but we'll we will certainly appropriate it and make it uh, and help to add it to our own flower because that is the purpose of all art, not simply to illustrate one's uniqueness, but also to offer oneself as a universal example of that which is good or beautiful or true to all others. And certainly we will not be prejudiced in our perceiving of Eastern art, just as we discuss Western art, because, well, as the old Kung Fu master supposedly said, two arms, two feet, we we are isomorphic. And so we share quite a bit in common with our fellow man, regardless of culture, which is, I think, precisely what some people are missing right now. It's uh, the vast majority of things connect us. Yeah. And it's important to realize that and treat each other with respect and uh, maintain our fundamental belief in human dignity because that just seems to make the world a better place. Yeah, right on. Right on. All right, well, this has been another concentration and concentrate indeed we did. Uh, and we really covered a lot of water and that uh, I'm glad that we did because we were talking about Poseidon today. And so we, we, we definitely need to seal the depths and not be consumed by them. And so whether this is our 10th conversation or our ninth. It was our best so far, and, well, I loved hosting it with you, Mr. West Chance, and I can't wait to talk to you tomorrow. All right, sounds good. Till then. Till then.